0: Advent is the first day of the Christian calendar, um, specifically the first Sunday of Advent. Um, Like I said, it's Happy New Year. And uh, one important mark, this isn't Christmas. It's not Christmas time, despite what the radio station I've been listening to is telling us. It's not Christmas yet. This is not a Christmas tree. It's an Advent tree. Uh, it's an advent tree, Reuben. I have the microphone. That means I'm right. Um, advent, it, for those of you who don't know, is the four weeks of Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. Sometimes it's a little longer, depending on what Christmas Day falls in the week. Sometimes it's a little shorter, like this week, this year, Christmas Day falls right after Advent 4, which is also Christmas Eve. Um, but it's those four weeks with the Sundays leading up to Christmas. Now, um, in the Christian church, Christmas isn't just a day, but it's also not the month of December, like the front end of December. It's 12 days beginning on the 25th on Christmas. So if you guys have ever heard the song, the 12 days of Christmas, that is actually a very cleverly veiled song about Christian symbolism. Go look it up. It's actually about the 12 days of the Christian season of Christmas. We get 12 days. We don't just get one. We win. Um... Now, uh, does anybody know some of the themes of Advent? Anybody that does not have a uh, degree from NTS? Asa, do you know one of the themes of Advent? You don't know? Has anybody cracked their Advent devotional from MPH? I'll give you a hint. There's some answers in there. Shame on you. Today is hope. Okay, so hope is one of the themes of Advent. Does anybody know the other three? Peace, joy, and love. love, That's right. The four candles around the Advent wreath represent these four themes. Can Graham, is not in here now. Um, Jovi, can you tell me what the white candle is in the middle? You told me earlier. It's the Christ candle. It's right. It's the Christmas candle. So through the rest of the church year, pretty much, we light the white Christ candle on the altar every Sunday. Sometimes we forget to light it. Don't tell Jesus. Um, But the Christ candle and the Advent wreath, we do not light until Christmas, until Christmas proper in the Christian church. Because for us, we kind of take this step back and say, yeah, Jesus has come, but we're going to prepare for Jesus to come. Um, And we're going to talk about that this morning. So the four candles around are hope, joy, love, peace, not in that order. And then Um, the Christ candle, which represents Christ coming to us. So we will light one candle every Sunday and keep lighting the Advent candles, and then we will wait for the Christ candle, just as we wait for Jesus. Because Advent is primarily a season of waiting. It's one of the most important parts of Advent, that we wait. Because Christmas, we confess as Christians, isn't about Starbucks cups. Christmas needs Advent because Christmas really means Christ mass. It's a celebration of Jesus coming. And without Advent, Christmas becomes about us, right? It becomes about the presents that I'm going to get in my stocking or under my tree. It becomes about the gifts I'm going to give the people I know. It becomes about the money that I'm spending on these gifts, and they better know how much I spend on them. It becomes about my family, Christmas becomes about my time, becomes about my decorations, about my vacation from the office, becomes about my house. Does it look shiny enough from the street? Does it look like the Griswolds? It becomes about my happiness. It becomes about my experience of Christmas. And that's not what Christmas is about. And without Advent, Christmas becomes an impossible dash an impossible fight to make a holiday kind of look like the Hallmark movies of Christmas, right? And I'm just going to spoil it for you. None of us can actually make that happen. It's just not possible. Because let's be honest, our lives are a little too messy, a lot too messy. Our families are too loud and argue way too much. And if that's not your family, I'll tell you it's mine. For too many of us, Unlike the Hallmark movie, our estranged family member will not magically show up on Christmas Day to freshly fallen snow in a silent Christmas morning. Our lives do not have Hallmark Channel resolutions to our conflicts. We are full of anxieties. We are full of fears. We are full of doubts. And for too many of us, Christmas, the holiday brings up more painful questions than peaceful answers. And without Advent, Christmas lacks any definite connection to our lives. Because without Advent, again, our Christmas hope, this is the week of hope, becomes placed in what we can make happen on our celebration. But Advent, Advent gives gives voice to those longings for Christmas, It gives rise to our sense of tension between the already and the not yet of Jesus' coming. Because on the one hand, Jesus has already come, right? That's why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus came, was born through Mary in Bethlehem. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and we know the story. But on the other hand, our world is still out of whack, And so many of us just want God to stop this madness and just make things right. And when we slow down long enough, we can feel that tension between Jesus has come and Jesus has saved us. We believe that. But we can still feel the groaning of our world and from our fellow humans. We feel their pain and their suffering, and we experience our own. And in Romans 8, this is called our groaning for the redemption of our bodies. We long for everything to be what it was meant to be, what we are promised it will be. Because we know and we believe and we confess that we are saved by Jesus. But we kind of want to see it, right? We want to be able to see that saving, that redemption, that deliverance take place in its fullness. Because we kind of sense in this way that we are completely saved, and yet we're kind of still waiting on Jesus to come back, right? Okay, Reuben. But today's passage in Mark 13, if we're not in Advent, feels really out of place in Christmas. But it's right at home in the season of Advent, in the season of waiting, in the season of preparation for Bethlehem, this season of longing for Jesus to come to us. And I'm just going to warn you on the front end this passage is kind of weird. So let's lean into this expectation and this waiting. And let us hear the word of the Lord from Mark 13, verses 24 through 37. But in those days, following that distress or that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that I am near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, And tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. Whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. And if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. Stay awake. Watch. This is the word of the Lord. Isn't it? This isn't exactly like, you know, like our fun little back mural. This isn't the wise men coming. And by the way, read your Bibles. It's probably more than three of them. It doesn't say three. It says three gifts. It's not the shepherds, like, getting angels singing over them. This isn't the angels in the heavens appearing. This isn't Mary receiving an angel. This is actually in Mark's gospel a lot closer to the cross than to the manger. And this chapter is Jesus' last words in Mark, his last teaching to his disciples. The whole chapter of 13 is Jesus teaching his disciples right before his arrest and right before the Lord's Supper. He's heading back to Jerusalem to face his arrest, his torture, his crucifixion in chapter 13. It feels a little bit like we sprinted past Christmas, doesn't it? Here there is no miracle of the virgin birth, no angels singing, There's no fun Christmas hymns. There's no joy to the world being sung right here. Instead, we receive, the sun will be darkened, the stars will fall, the very heavens will be shaken. It can kind of be a little depressing, maybe. And to be honest, it's just kind of weird. Like, this is not a passage that if you were a pastor and didn't know you were preaching on Sunday, you wouldn't want to get this on Saturday. Let's just say that. The rest of chapter 13 is just as strange. It's just as alarming, even. This entire chapter, again and again, Jesus tells his disciples about the return of the Son of Man, the return of himself to them. And Jesus spends the chapter telling them about suffering and anguish, of families going into disarray, and of the desolation and destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, where no stone will be left on top of another. It's not beginning to look a lot like Christmas, So this passage isn't very Christmassy, but it is Advent because Advent is always pointing in two directions. Advent is always pointing towards the already and the not yet. It's kind of like a panoramic picture. Gets the whole picture in view, stretching all the way from Christ coming to Bethlehem, stretching all the way back to Genesis 1 in the creation and stretching all the way forward through Revelation to Jesus coming back and saying Behold, I make all things new. Advent always keeps both of these things in our sight. That's why Advent is so important. Because Advent points us to Bethlehem where the Son of God in all his power and majesty will lie as a newborn infant in the arms of an unmarried 16-year-old refugee. But Advent simultaneously and constantly points us to Jesus coming back, that he will return. Our theme this week as we go through the MPH preaching is he is coming. Even the word Advent means coming or arrival or appearance. Advent points both ways. So I don't think you came to Advent week one expecting to hear an apocalyptic text. But we did. And there are probably as many theories about the apocalypse and Jesus coming back as there are as many theories of creation. There's probably more. I'm not going to go into those today. If you want to talk about those, we can sit down over a cup of coffee and hash those out. But Mark 13 is absolutely an apocalyptic passage. And before you start panicking and reaching for your cell phones to distract yourself, I promise you that what we learn about the return of Jesus through the lens of Advent and through the lens of Christmas is probably not what you are used to hearing or what you are afraid you're about to hear. For instance, spoiler alert, we're not looking at a zombie apocalypse. It's not going to happen. But you might have noticed there's been a lot of movies and TV shows about it, And about the end in general. There's a lot of kind of pop culture telling us what the end looks like. And what all of these movies and themes and books and songs and whatever share in common is that they are hopeless. They paint a hopeless landscape in which the people that are left behind and left living kind of just descend farther and farther into the darkness that's around them. And art is almost always either a reflection of our culture or a critique of it. And in this case, it's a reflection of what our culture already is afraid of, right? Our culture is afraid of the future. Our culture has no hope. And sometimes, as Christians, our version of the apocalypse is just as hopeless, isn't it? We've all heard preachers stand behind a pulpit and tell us this is what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. And we walk out and go, that does not seem like good news. We've all read books that are incredibly popular that tell us a story and a narrative that lacks any hope in who Jesus is. And just a quick aside, freebie for the day. If you're wondering if a theology of the end is like off a bit, ask yourself, does this statement, does this book, does this movie, does this set of beliefs really believe that Jesus can heal and redeem Or does it tell a story of God just scrapping everything and starting over? If it doesn't really think that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can redeem, it's not Christian. And far too often what we tell ourselves in Christian circles and what we pass around lacks real hope because it doesn't believe that God actually is reaching into the lives of the broken right now. And it doesn't believe that God is actually capable of saving us but God is. He is coming. See, I wonder when we look at Advent if we really understand the hope that we have in Jesus coming to us. Because far too often our voices and our heads are filled with voices of self-proclaimed experts who seem all too ready to just do away with everything in this world and with all the people in it. People that calculate the date of when Jesus is coming back often don't really care. When, like what happens to everybody else. But ask yourself this. If all of God's fullness, all of God's majesty is revealed in Christ Jesus, born in a manger, that tells us something really critical about who God is. And we should start with God's character revealed in Jesus, and then we can try to piece together what, every, what it might look like when he comes back. Because any story that is devoid of hope for our world and is instead filled with apathy is critiqued by Advent and by Christmas. We've all heard the hopeless story of our world. And sometimes I feel that hopelessness if I'm just being honest. And I can't always blame the ones telling it because I look at the news. And I hear stories of people I desperately care about being very broken and being very hurt and being trampled by the world. And when we look around, we feel that tension of the already and the not yet. And we feel a similar kind of tension and a similar kind of ache and pain and suffering that the Israelites first felt waiting on the Messiah. And so we take a season to wait. The Israelites waited and cried out for hundreds and hundreds of years and they experienced suffering they were waiting and longing to be redeemed longing for their world to be made right and like them we are longing For the days of racism, of sexism, of war, of heartache, of disease, and death to be brought to an end. We are longing for God's justice to set right the injustices of our sins. We long to be reconciled with our families, with our loved ones. We want to be well in our minds and in our bodies. We are dying to be saved We long for all of the suffering to be at its end. We feel the not yet. We long for the already. He is coming. As we long for our Messiah to return and we wait, He is coming. This is the double vision of Advent. This is the hope of Advent, that we prepare to celebrate his first coming in anticipation of his second coming. And so every year, we do the same thing. We prepare ourselves again and again to receive Jesus again and again, because we must always be receiving Jesus again and again, every day And we must constantly be receiving this vision of him coming back because we must constantly be receiving what he is doing in us now to get us there. And in Mark here, where we have just read, on this Advent journey, we hear Jesus, his words are actually brimming with the proclamation of hope to his disciples. Because here Jesus uses the language of the Old Testament and the imagery of the prophets to illuminate the hope that it is Him who is coming back to us. See, as much as this passage is weird and strange, Jesus is actually working to comfort and correct His disciples. And that's why He tells them to keep watch, to stay awake. Does anyone know what happens in Mark 14? in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark's Gospel. The very next chapter, Jesus asks his disciples to stay awake with him and to pray as he is anticipating his rest. He is praying for God to give the Father, to give him grace to go through the cross. And so he asks his closest friends to stay awake and pray. And they fall asleep over and over and over And here in chapter 13, just like a couple, like the day before, he's just told them, stay awake, be alert, keep watch to wait for him. And so this passage consistently challenges the trust that the disciples have placed in things other than Jesus. Chapter 13 challenges first the trust they have placed in Jerusalem and then the very nation of Israel. In verse 1, it says Jesus was leaving the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings, about the temple. And just to kind of give you some context, the temple for the people of Israel was so much more than a church building. The temple represented the very presence of God to God's people. Without the temple... Like if you read the Psalms where they went into exile and the temple was destroyed the first time, they feel like God has died because the temple is gone. And how much they celebrate when the temple is rebuilt. And so, this temple, this building in the center of the city that the disciple points back to, is covered. The walls are coated in gold. And he says, Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings! It's so cool! He points to what is the presence of God to the people of Israel and says, Jesus, look. Do you catch the irony of pointing at a building that is supposed to represent the very presence of God when you are standing next to Emmanuel, God, with us? Hey, Jesus, look at this building. Jesus is the presence of God to the people of Israel and the people of the nations. Look at this pretty building, Jesus. Jesus that's where God lives. Did you know? If I had been Jesus, I would have been tempted to use a tactic my dad often used on me. It's called a brain duster. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a sharp smack to the back of the head. Kind of rattles the cobwebs. It's really easy for us to look at this poor disciple and just say, he's a moron. And you you think the temple is the presence of God? You are standing next to God, in flesh. Jesus, look at these pretty buildings. But brothers and sisters, Advent challenges us to say we too have pointed at temples. We too are often pointing to something when God is standing right beside us. Jesus, do you see these pretty buildings? Advent calls us to ask the question: What's your temple? What is it that you've placed your hope in? What is it you have placed your trust in? To what or to whom are you pointing and saying, this is God's presence to us. This is the hope of the world when God is standing right beside you. If it's a political party, an ideological statement, a person, your marriage or the idea of marriage, the hope of marriage, if it's your family, your job, it's going to fail you. I promise. But he is coming. And Jesus responds to this disciple who is so far off base with the stunning pronouncement that that building and that city will fall. And Jesus goes on through the rest of chapter 13 to dismantle this idea that the kingdom of God is found in Jerusalem or the temple or even the nation of Israel. Instead, Jesus says, I am the kingdom of God. Instead, the fullness of God's reign will come through no other than Jesus of Nazareth, who is coming to us. And so he paints this cosmic upheaval of everything that the disciples had been raised to believe. This pretty building will not house God. Even the sun and the stars will not house God. There is no city, no nation, no building that will bring about God's kingdom. It is only the work of Jesus Christ. And he is coming. Stay awake. So Jesus tells his disciples and tells us that the heirs of the kingdom are the elect in this passage, or the chosen, that he gathers from the ends of heaven. And our theological heritage tells us something really important about this. That what Jesus says, the elect, he does not mean those he has chosen versus those he has not chosen. When Jesus says the elect... He's again referencing the Old Testament and saying the upright, the righteous, those who have already accepted the invitation to this big, messy family. We believe that the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, the one who is coming to us, that God has chosen everyone. That every single person is invited into our messy family of God. And our hope and our prayer is that all of them say yes. That they will come to know who God is in Jesus and come to love God. That is our prayer. And our hope is that this Jesus who is coming to make all things good, to make all things right, and to restore justice, is working on those people right now. That Jesus is coming to lift up the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to bind the wounded. And the downtrodden and the broken, that Jesus is right now seeking out the lost. And to gather eventually the faithful from all the corners of the world and all the heavens. See, in this statement, Jesus is already saying that it is not just the people of Israel to whom Jesus is coming, but that Jesus is coming to all of us, the church as well. He is coming. Stay awake. It's like he invites us to look for him among those he is coming to save, to seek him out there, to stay awake, to keep watch. And in here in Mark, he says there's going to be this cosmic upheaval, this absolute turning of the tables, if you will, when the Lord of all reveals himself in all of his glory. And so in this short passage, he references Isaiah, Joel, Daniel, Deuteronomy, Zechariah. Those are all books in the Old Testament. Check them out. They're good. Jesus paints this picture of the entire order of the cosmos being upended, being sort of tossed out in comparison. Because even the sun, the moon, the stars, all of the heavenly bodies, the powers in some translations, their very consistency is what marks our human lives. Our lives are built around the coming and the turning of the sun and the rising of it and the moon changes the tides. Our lives are built around marking our time by these things. And Jesus says they will be stopped. Even heaven itself will disappear because I am coming to you. The things of the world that we so often point to and go, look, here's God. The things that seem most stable to us are but missed compared to what Jesus says. That these things will pass away, but my words will never pass away. My words, Jesus says, will never fail you. And he has promised that he is coming back. Brothers and sisters, the word of Christ can be trusted. Stay awake. He is coming For the word who says, my words can be trusted, is the very word that created and sustains all that is. This is the word in flesh who came to the prophets. This is the word in flesh, Jesus the Christ, that we are waiting for. This living word is the very logic of God. The one that illuminates God to us. And illuminates God's plans and God's intentions. And God's goal for the world and for all of humanity. It is Jesus alone that gives us hope because he is the one who is coming. And Jesus is coming as promised as a comfort to his people. For he says, When I come, I will stop death, I will wipe every tear from your eyes, and I will bring you peace and love and joy. He is our hope. And so we spend Advent waiting because every day of our lives should be spent waiting. And we believe that when he comes, he will indeed make the world right and that suffering will have met its end. Brothers and sisters, keep watch with me. We must wait. He is coming.